I've been doing a lot of traveling this week, a lot of speaking. Uh, so I was in Georgia on Wednesday. Last night I was up at Table Rock and spoke up there this morning, of course, here. And then tomorrow morning, uh, I have the high honor of teaching on leadership to some of our Pickens County School leaders. And so that'll be excited. So this morning, I sort of feel shook. I have no idea if I used that correctly or not. But anyway, uh, that's kind of the way it is. Uh, I'm going to have a word of prayer, and I'll share with you what's on my heart. Jesus, thank you so much for these beautiful people, and what a high honor to be able to share with them this morning. Um, I don't take that for granted, Lord. That's a, that's a blessing in my life. So thank you for that. I pray, Father, that um, you would hide me in your cross. I don't know if there's any person that is worth kind of sitting under every week after week. So, Lord, we've actually come to hear from you. Uh, not from any person. And so, uh, Lord, we come and, and want the same thing we want every week. Uh, we want to leave and be more like you. Uh, I want to leave and be more like Jesus and how I live my life, how I love my family, how I love this community. I want to be more like you. And I pray that for everybody listening to the sound of my voice, everybody in this room, everybody online who's watching. Um, we just want to be more like you. And I encourage you, if you're hearing my voice, to pray and just ask in this moment, God, make me more like you. Go ahead and just ask God to do that. Lord, make me more like you. Make me more like you. For some of you, it might be an overhaul, major overhaul. Others, it might be a tweak. But whatever it is, Lord, we're in. So make us more like you, and we'll give you good praise for that in your name. Amen. As we've been going through this series, uh, we've been talking about... Uh, some seemingly impossible stories from Scripture. They sort of sound outlandish uh, when you hear them. Uh, they, they just do sound outlandish. And the reason is because they, they are outlandish. And there's this temptation, I think, that when we hear these stories to sort of think this is like a fable category and to sort of think, well, uh, Mother Goose and Jesus got together and this story popped out. You know, and so that's kind of how people sometimes think about these stories. And yet through all these stories, um, the thing that's kind of been convicting to me and that surprised me in the preparation of all this was how uh, the focus of the, of the main character of these stories is never the people in these stories, but the main character is actually God in all of these stories. And that's been the most challenging idea to me. And, and, and this, the, these stories, these kind of, that are so strange, the, the challenging thing is that apparently the stories that happened that we read about could actually be our stories. You say, How, why, why would you say that? Well, it's because of what the Scripture actually says about the main character, about God. Because the Bible says that God doesn't change. This is in Malachi. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. And so what that means is the same God that Daniel prayed to, you pray to. The same God that Jonah prayed to, get this, from the belly of a whale or the belly of a fish, that's the same God you pray to and that I pray to. And then Hebrews says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and in the future. So whatever's happening, I can't understand it. I can't put my mind around it. But when I pray and you pray, we're praying to that same God. But the problem I have is I, I think logically, at least most of the time, and my logic processes sort of get blindsided by these strange stories because logically they don't make sense. Nobody goes into a lion's den and walks out. Nobody goes into a furnace and walks out. Nobody gets swallowed by a whale and lives and then is vomited on the shore. I don't know if anybody is, but if I, I'd like to try it. I mean, that would be an amazing story to say, hey, uh, you went fishing? <laughs> Let me tell you my fish story. But anyway, anyway that, that, nobody does that. And you know, Jesus would actually agree, if that's an insult to your logic, Jesus would agree with you. Because what Jesus says is, what is impossible with people is actually now possible with God. So let me summarize. 
When we pray, we're praying to a God who can do the impossible in your life and in my life. Now today, uh, it's going to be story time with Pastor Tom. That's what it's going to be because I've got to tell you a story and it's going to take a while to get through the story. But it's a great story. And so I hope that you'll kind of engage with me a little bit. And I'm going to tell you the whole story and then make a couple points at the end. Now, here's the thing about today's story. God is never mentioned in the story. God is never mentioned by name throughout the entire story. Yet after hearing it, you will have to come to the same decision I have to come to is either it was God or it's a whole bunch of coincidences that just happened at, at the right moments, which I think is what a coincidence is. But anyway, it's either, either that or, or, or it's a coincidence, either God or coincidence. And, and, and even more than that, we're going to see that even though God's not mentioned, God is still the main character through the entire story through awkward and even wrong circumstances. God is still working. The story is found in the book of Esther. Esther opens with chapter 1, and we meet King Xerxes. King Xerxes, what a dude. If you've ever seen the movie 300, he's the king in that movie, okay? And so um, King Xerxes, not only did he think he was king, he thought he was a god. And so uh, King Xerxes is doing his godlike thing, and the story opens up with King Xerxes throwing a party that lasted 180 days, now, you guys thought you had a reputation, not fraternity or sorority, okay? You guys thought you were all that. This one, or maybe you just read about it, but this one, this one lasted 180 days of party. That's how this book opens up. And the only rule for the party is there are no rules. You can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. And Xerxes, who sees himself not as a king, but as also as a god, now, King Xerxes sees himself as that God, so you can do whatever you want, but the one thing about a God is you never tell a God no. You never tell a king who thinks he's God no. File that away. So they throw the first party that lasted 180 days, and they follow it up with another party. This is in the Bible, okay? This is in the Bible. So after the 180-day party, he throws a seven-day party for his closest friends. And so now they're throwing this other party, and they're doing a little thing, and they're well into the bottle in the second party. And then the king decides with all of his drunk friends, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to have the queen come in and dance for you guys. So King Xerxes sends a note to Queen Vashti, who, by the way, is throwing her own party. Okay, so three parties. We're not even out of chapter one yet. So, okay, She's throwing her own party. He sends something to the queen and says, hey, queen, I want you to come and dance for all my drunk friends. The queen does the one thing you're not supposed to do to a king who thinks he's God. What was it? Tell him no. And she did. She said, nope, not going to happen. Well, now... The king, who thinks he's a god, realizes the queen just told him no. <laughs> uh, anyway, and um, that's just too close to home, wasn't it? I mean, that just kind of... All the men in the room are afraid to move, you know. <laughs> so he gets there with all his drunk buddies. What do you all think I should do? <laughs> and the drunk buddies, buddies say... Well, this is unacceptable. 
And if you read the Bible, read the passage for yourself, the reason they want the king to say this is unacceptable because their concern is, what if our wives hear about him, her telling the king no, they're going to start telling us no too. You've got to do something. <laughs> so they decide to remove Queen Vashti as the queen. Then chapter 2 starts, and in chapter 2, all the party has worn off, and the king says, you know what, I'm kind of lonely. He goes back to his same buddies. <laughs> and he says, what do you think we should do? His buddies, who you've already determined are not the brightest bulbs in the drawer, they say, I'll tell you what, why don't we hold this beauty contest? And we'll gather beautiful versions from all over the kingdom. And we'll put them all like in a corral or something. And then like you can pick which one you want to be the queen. We'll just have this huge contest. And then one of the most obvious responses in the duh of all verses is right here when the king said, this this advice appealed to the king. Gosh, you think so? (laughs) Let's get all the beautiful women in the kingdom and put and then you pick one. That would be great. And the king says, well, since you all put it like that, I guess it'd be okay. So the search is underway. All the beautiful virgins in the kingdom are being gathered. And then enter to the story a man by the name of Mordecai. Mordecai is actually in this kingdom because his great-great-grandfather was one of the slaves Nebuchadnezzar took with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember? One of those dudes. He's still there. Mordecai's there. And he's raising the daughter of his uncle. Her name is Esther. Esther is a beautiful, beautiful girl. It's a Campbell Soup moment when you look at Esther. Mm-mm, good. You know, that's kind of what that whole thing is, yeah. You're welcome. Send me an email. I don't care. <laughs> I may need a place to sleep. Uh, Ah, she's in the other service. Okay, so anyway, this is going to be fine. She's beautiful. In fact, she's really beautiful. And the Bible actually says she's beautiful. It just says it in a better way. And so she's selected to be part of this harem the king has put together. Even when she gets into the harem, everybody says, wow, she's special. And so she actually set aside for special purposes and gets special favor. Now, let me tell you how this pageant basically plays out, because what would happen is each girl would go through 12 months of kind of beauty spa ritual type stuff. And then after 12 months, each girl would go and spend the night with the king for her audition. And the king would choose the one he wanted. And if he didn't want you, then you became a concubine, which basically was a sex slave for the king to use in the coming days. The winner of the night, the king becomes the queen. Esther has her moment. And Esther wins the contest, becomes the queen. One other thing happens in chapter 2 you have to know for the rest of the story. Mordecai is actually sitting at the city gate, which is where all the important people sat. That's all he really needed to know. And when he's just sitting there, he hears two guys over here who are talking about a way to assassinate King Xerxes. So Mordecai tells Esther, hey, you may want to tell the king these two dudes are thinking about killing King Xerxes. Esther does. She goes, hey, my uncle Mordecai or my cousin Mordecai said these two guys are going to assassinate you. And this is what happened. This is Esther chapter 2, verse 23. When the report was investigated and found out to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. Now pay attention to the part in yellow. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Remember that book. Remember that book in this story. 
Chapter 3. Bad guy enters the story. His name is Haman. Haman is an important man in the kingdom, but nobody really liked him. He was so important that when he went through town, whatever you were doing, everybody had to stop and sort of bow down and do that number. And Haman loved to ride through town and have everybody do that. He thought he was really important. And everybody would bow down except Mordecai. Mordecai comes from the same stock of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they don't bow down to anything other than their God. So Mordecai is not going to bow down to Haman, and this drove Haman bonkers. He'd drive through town, and thousands of people, he'd drive through town because they had cars. No, he would ride through town, and it drove Haman bonkers. Everybody bowed except for this one dude. So Haman decides instead of just killing Mordecai, he's so incensed by the one dude, he says, I'm going to wipe Mordecai's entire race off the planet, all the Jewish people. So he goes to King Xerxes to kind of get permission. Haman says to King Xerxes, this is chapter 3, verse 8. There's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all other people, and they don't even obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. Apparently it did please the king. Mordecai finds out about this impending doom, this impending slaughter of the Jewish people. So he contacts Queen Esther, who has been part of the kingdom now for a while, and says, you have to stop this. But Queen Esther is living in the palace, high on the hog, so to speak. And so she doesn't really want a whole lot to do with this because of the one rule in relating to a king who thinks he's God, and that is you don't ever say no. So she says, I don't think I can do what you say. In fact, this is her response back to Mordecai. When she says to Mordecai, I can't do this, Mordecai's response back to her. If you remain silent, Esther, at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews is going to come from somewhere. But you and your father's family will perish. Check this out. And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Well, old Esther, young Esther, is actually convinced to go ahead and to do what her uncle says, to do the right thing. And she literally says in Scripture, this was her attitude, well, if I die, I die. You know, that's kind of what her attitude was. And so uh, she gets all dressed up in her royal robes, and you just kind of have to figure this out. It's a whole cultural thing, but she isn't actually allowed to go into the king's presence without an invitation. In fact, she hadn't been in there for 30 days. So she gets all dressed up and dolled up, and she basically goes and stands at the door. That act in and of itself could have caused her to be banished or something horrible. But the king sees her, and he raises kind of his, his scepter or something that allows her to come in, just like kind of Lisa and I relate to at home. And that's kind of how that whole thing works. <laughs> and so she's actually able to come in and have this conversation with the king, you know. And Xerxes is so excited to see her that he says, hey, uh, what can I do for you, queen? And the queen says, well, I've made a meal. And I'd love for you and Haman to come and, be, and, to, and to, to eat the meal. And this pleased the king very much. In fact, it pleased the king so much, he said, what can I give you? I'll give you up to half of the kingdom if you want it. Friends, this is a meal. This isn't hot pockets and a glass of sweet tea, okay? You know, this is, this is a big meal. 
And so he comes in, sits down, and makes their, Haman and the king are eating and having a good time. And he says, what do you want, queen? And the queen says, here, this is really what I want. Just come back tomorrow and let me make you another meal. Haman and the king smack five, say, well, we're in. You know, we'll be back tomorrow for another meal. So they leave that dinner. Haman's feeling really good about himself. He's walking through town, and I have a little know he's singing zippity-doo-dah because he's going through town. He's feeling good about zippity-doo-dah. He's feeling really great. Everybody's bowing down. And then there's a dead blame Mordecai who's standing up over there. Poo-poo face. I mean, he's standing up over there, and he won't bow down to me. And so he does what all men do when we're having a bad day. We go home and complain to our wives. <laughs> Let me tell you what happened in my life today, hon. <laughs> that doggone Mordecai won't bow down. His wife basically says, stop moaning and do something. What should I do? His wife, beautiful lady, why don't you build a gallows and hang him from it? She's so sweet. Everybody loved her in the neighborhood. I mean, she Girl Scouts, a whole nine yards. She was beautiful. Why don't you just kill him? Huh. Where, where were you raised? You know what? what well, this sounds great to Mordecai, so he builds this 75-foot gallows in his front yard. But he has to get the king's permission before he can hang anybody, so he decides the following day at the dinner that Esther's going to make, he'll ask the king's permission. That night, the king can't sleep. And so he's wondering what in the world he's going to do. So he says, well, I can't sleep. So he does the one thing. He says, let's get a book to read, preferably a book on history because that'll put anybody to sleep. And so he has a book selected. They say, go select me a book. Now, you've got to understand, the king has a library. I mean, massive amounts of books that describe what he has done in his kingdom, in his, in his reign. So whoever goes and picks the book, they go and pick Book of the Annals, the one that recorded when Mordecai saved the king's life. Isn't that a coincidence? So he's sitting there at night trying to fall asleep, eating popcorn, and the person's reading him the book, and he hears about how Mordecai saved his life. When Xerxes hears this story, he says, whatever happened to Mordecai? Did anybody do anything nice for him? And the people say, no, I don't think anything happened to Mordecai. Well, this bothers the king, even so they can't sleep anymore. He wakes up the next morning. He says, is anybody out there in the courtyard? Anybody outside? And they say, well, Haman's here because he has no life and he's a twerp. And so Haman, <laughs> so Haman is invited in. Now, this is where I think the story really gets funny uh, for me because I'm not right in the head. But this is a funny, funny story. So I'm just going to read it right out of the scripture. You can decide if you think it's funny. Haman enters and the king says, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Who do you think Haman thinks the king's talking about? Haman is positioned. <laughs> oh, this is going to be good. So watch Haman's response. This is so funny. Haman says to himself, who would the king rather honor than me? You know, because he's a twerp. So he answered the king. The man had thought about it. For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn. Kind of like getting a championship jersey from someone. And a horse the king has ridden. 
one with the royal crest. He thought about it to that detail. One with the royal crest placed on its head, and then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to the one of the king's most noble princesses and lead him on the horse through the city streets. He's even got this proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man that the king delights to honor. And the king's like, wow, you thought of all that right there? I mean, that's... That's pretty amazing. Sitting here thinking about hot pockets, and you got <laughs> King loves the idea. And so he says to Haman, Haman's so pumped, he says, That's a great idea, Haman. Go to Mordecai and do all those things for him. And Haman, will... <laughs> get this, verse 11. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai, here's your stinking robe, <laughs> and led him on horseback through the city streets, Haman's proclaiming. <laughs> Can you imagine the enthusiasm? <laughs> this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. <laughs> oh, my gracious. Haman gets finished doing all that, and he thinks, well, at least I'm going to have dinner today with the king and the queen. Esther's prepared, and then Esther and Haman go to eat the meal, and then Esther begins to work her magic. (laughs) Queen Esther says, he said, what would I do? What should I do? I'll give you half the kingdom. And Queen Esther says, if I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, why don't you grant me my life? And the king's jarred. This is my petition. And... Spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. Can you imagine what that did to the king? Because he has no clue. Now watch Esther work her magic right here. If we've merely been sold as male and female slaves, I certainly wouldn't have bothered you, king, because that's <laughs> I would have kept quiet. There's no such distress would justify disturbing you, the king, if we were just merely slaves. Xerxes is ticked. He says, King Esther, who? Who is the person? Esther said, it's Haman. Haman did it right there. It's him. He's the one. Again, one of the dramatic understatements in Scripture. Haman was terrified before the king and queen. (laughs) King goes ballistic. He's so out of control. He says, the scripture says he has to walk around the garden to cool down. You know what I'm saying? He's so mad. Like, we can have this conversation in a minute, but I got to go down here and cool down. Haman stays back with the queen to kind of see if he can grovel for his life. Apparently, Esther is reclining on the couch because that's how they did things back then because they were way cooler than us. And so Esther's kind of reclining on the couch. The king walks in. Just as the king walks in, Haman strips on the carpet, and he falls on top of the queen. (laughs) So the king walks in with Haman laying on top of his queen. This is not going to end well. The king exclaimed in verse chapter 7, Will you even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs, if you don't know what that is, you're in the wrong service, attending the king. And he said, I know where there's a gallows. <laughs> Haman's got one in his front yard. <laughs> and the king says, let him swing, you know, hang him on it. 
Isn't this a great story? <laughs> yeah. Here's a question. Why in Sam Hill's name is it in the Bible? <laughs> Why is this in the Bible? I mean, if you knock all the Sunday school off of this story, it is R-rated at best. And certainly difficult to explain to children. This is not the version Miss Millie taught me in Sunday school when I was growing up about Queen Esther. Xerxes thinks he's a god, and he throws parties to celebrate himself that last six months. He asks his wife to show her beauty because he and his friends are all drunk. She says no, so he does away with her. The king says, well, let's do a, hold a beauty pageant. And he gathers all the pretty virgins in the land, and those who enter the pageant either end up being a queen or a sex slave for the rest of their life. Esther auditions by spending the night with the king, and she wins the queen. Haman is this self-promoter, and we've already established a registered twerp and has a grudge with someone who doesn't like him. And the grudge with this individual who doesn't like him escalates to such a point where Haman seeks to not just kill the individual that doesn't like him, but the guy's entire race, the Jewish race. Esther works Xerxes, and this all ends up with Haman being hung up in the gallows that he built for someone else. Praise the Lord. When's the last time you sang a worship song about this one, huh? What are you going to put on a t-shirt from this story? (laughs) This sounds like a bad Netflix show. It's kind of what it sounds like. Now, here's the point. You have to make a decision as you understand this story. Even though God's not mentioned... Either God was in the details, or the whole thing was a whole lot of coincidences. You have to decide. The people in power were corrupt and godless. And yet, at just the right time, through less than pleasant circumstances, a Jewish girl, who's only there because Nebuchadnezzar took slaves, the Jewish girl becomes a queen. Was that a coincidence, or is that a God thing? Mordecai, the Jewish uncle, happens to be sitting at just the right place at the city gate where he overhears two dudes who are thinking about assassinating the king. Is that a coincidence or is that a God thing? Xerxes has a sleepless night the night before Haman comes in to kind of reveal his plan to destroy Mordecai. Xerxes has a sleepless night. Some servant goes and pulls one of the books, the annals of the king's reign, and he reads the section and the paragraph that talked about Mordecai's favor to the king. Was that a coincidence or was that a God thing? Haman gets caught up in his plot, and even to the detail of stumbling and falling on the queen as the king walks in. Coincidence or God thing? And as a result of all of this nastiness and all these arrogant people and all these morally compromised situations and all of these, this bad advice, God's promise marches on. And his plan to redeem the world moves forward. So let me ask you something. If you were preaching on this, What would you preach on right now? Where would you take it? I have been gnawing on this possibility 
that life is not all about me. And that if the main character of Scripture is God, then maybe the main character of my life and your life is God as well. And maybe it's not all about my universe and managing things all around me, but maybe it's actually about God. So what is God up to in this story? If Haman had followed through on his desire to destroy the Jewish people, that could have put an end to the people of God. It would have broke the prom, broken the promise that God made to Abraham. Do you remember? You're going to be a great people. Not only that, but if you really play it all the way out, Jesus, who was supposed to be Jewish from Mary and Joseph and that whole lineage that we see in Matthew chapter 1, never would have happened. Potentially, if Haman's plan takes place, you don't have to worry about writing the New Testament. It's one of those times in Scripture where everything seems to be held together by just this one little thread. We've looked at David, adulterer, murderer. Looked at Samson, who did absolutely nothing right his entire life. We looked at Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who delivered from the lion's den, delivered from the furnace, and then died in slavery. We looked at Jonah, who got swallowed by a whale, vomited out. God heals people and shows mercy and then gets mad at God for showing mercy. See, through all these stories, people did things that shouldn't have been done, and things unfolded that should never have happened. Hear what I just said. Through all the stories in the You Gotta Be Kidding Me series, people did things that should never have been done, and things unfolded that should never have happened. And that is a lot like my story. Yours? Come on. With me? When you evaluate your life and you tell the story of your life, aren't there a couple of chapters in there? Here's some things that shouldn't have been done. And some things unfolded that should never have happened. Of course that's true. It's true for everybody in this room. We could all share moments in our lives as a kid, as a single adult, as a married person, a college student, an employee, an employer. You know, if everybody did what God said to do, life would be better. But let me get real with you. It's not going to happen in this life. Everybody is not going to do what God says to do. Not going to happen. I'll tell you, it didn't get uglier than that. (laughs) It's not going to happen in church world. (laughs) Not our church, but those other churches you passed on the way here. Pretty sure. So I kind of have two takeaways in the story of Esther. And the first one is this that I want to encourage your heart with. If God decides he wants to do something, he'll do it, and nobody can ruin or stop his plan, period. And that means in your life and my life, too. If God decides to do something, he'll do it. 
Nobody can ruin or stop his plan, no matter how powerful they think they are or how powerful the world sees them. Nothing will stop his plan. Esther hears about the threat to the Jewish people, and her initial response is, I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to risk myself or my position. And then Mordecai says to her, if you remain silent at this time, so be it. Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Why? Because if God decides he wants to do something, he'll do it, and nobody can ruin or stop his plans. Now let me just, let me just apply this butter to your bread a little deeper. You ready? This includes our mistakes. This includes what you did Friday night, what you did as a teen, what you did all through college, what you did in your first relationship. This includes those things. My poor decisions will not keep God from forcefully advancing and writing his story. And it's true for you too. God is able to use anything and anyone to accomplish what he desires, including a beauty pageant for a bunch of virgins. The one that can please the king the most on their night's audition wins the queenship, and God uses that. Haman wants to wipe out a whole race, and God used it. The king goes out to cool down, walks in, Haman had fallen over and laying on the queen, and God used it. (laughs) Doesn't that blow your brain? What that means is God will use all that stuff you carry. You should have never, would have never, if you could go back and do over. This includes those moments when we didn't hit it out of the park. See, we've heard our entire lives, God loves you and has a plan for our lives to change the world. And outwardly we're saying, oh, amen, amen. But inwardly we say, I kind of doubt it. Because I'm not sure God can use me because I did that. And you know what the scripture would say to that? Stop being stupid. Oh, I don't know if it says that exactly, but it's just. Because respectfully. Your story, my story, it's never about you. God's the main character. It's not about you. It's about God and what God is up to on the planet. What if through your trial, your failure, your stress, your grief, and yes, your past sin, God actually is trying to share how good he is? What if God is using the Xerxes moments of our lives, the Haman moments of our lives, to carry out his divine plan and to write his story? My second takeaway is this. Esther teaches me, your past does not have to disqualify your future because God's grace is bigger than your sin or anyone else's. What are you trying to say? Regardless of how we all got here to this moment in time, regardless of all that happened back there that you hope this room never finds out about, or regardless of all that happened back there that was amazing, regardless of your victories and your failures, your successes and your losses, regardless of all of that, this is where you are 
right now. As you sit there, as you watch, this is your moment. This is your life. This is it. You can't polish that back there and make it look better than it was. This is it. Maybe you didn't get to this moment in a good way. What if all of that, like Esther, what if all of your life has been actually leading up to such a time as this moment right here? Should you have gotten addicted? Should you have had the affair? Should have you told the lie? Should you have gotten involved with him, gotten involved with her? Should, have you, should you have ruined your business? Should, have, should you have been dishonest? Should you have committed a crime? Should you have been abused, mistreated, abandoned, raped? No. Heaven's sakes, no. But now what? See, this is what I see in the pages of Esther. Through all the bad things, God was there. And nothing that has happened in your life and in my life has the power to disqualify you from being used by God and from being part of his will moving forward. God's mighty plan of redemption marches on. In your life and mine, Hallelujah. I'm glad I didn't get stuck in that. God's mighty plan is marching on. So through failure, through sin, through loss, through discouragement, through disappointment, God's plan is marching on. And for some of you, the reason I think you might be here is God is saying, Now is the time, such a time as this moment. Enough bawling over all that happened back there. Enough regret. We all got it. We understand it. I've forgiven it. Let's move forward now. What if I'm trying to use your story to write my story? There are no clearance items in the kingdom of God. There are no secondhand in the kingdom of God. Everybody is slightly irregular. <laughs> not in the bow, but you know, you know what I'm trying to say? So, not there. That didn't come out right. That's not a good way to say that either. But anyway, you get, you get what I'm trying to say. What if, what if, what if God has something in store for you for such a time as this? Because everything I read in Esther says we're all still in the game. Jesus, thank you for the beauty of these people. They encourage my heart, and I love being part of their lives. I pray, especially for my sister, my brother in the room, who right now has been so focused on the moments of their lives that maybe they've missed the main character of life. Maybe they've focused on failures, things they did wrong, things somebody did wrong that impacted them. And maybe by the power of your Holy Spirit in this moment, you would affirm in their hearts, hey, I've got you right where I need you for such a time as this. I've got you where I need you for such a time as this. Stop writing your story 
and help right mine for such a time as this. Thank you, God, that you can use the Esthers and the Hamans and the Xerxes and the Toms of this world to make sure your story marches on. All God's people said, amen.